So here's where we're going to go today. We're going back in the scriptures to the life of David. I felt something was just really important. We might have even covered it when we were doing our broadcasts from the home, but I felt there was something important in highlighting today with what I'm just kind of seeing and perhaps you as well and hearing perhaps you as well. So a couple of things inspired that. So if you'll go ahead and turn back into 2 Samuel, we're going to pick some of the story that we left off last on of Mephibosheth. And so you're going to be in the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel. And we're going to probably be picking it up just at about verse 3. And Jonathan usually asks me, do I have a title? I had a title. Do I have that bulletin, Christine? Thank you. The Shame of Blame. That's the title for this. The Shame of Blame. And one of the things that inspired that, actually two situations in my personal life <laughs> that I believe the Lord tagged me on, was some of you may have noticed that last week my britches weren't dragging on the ground. Maybe you didn't. But for those of you that have a historic pride in the 70s, I was wearing my britches dragging underneath my heels, at times underneath my sandals, and they wore a classic hole through them. Anybody see that? Okay. And so I think the voice of my grandmother must have convicted Christy because that was not her generation style. But eventually new genes came for me, which I debuted last Sunday. And so they are those which I'm wearing presently. A crisper blue, a snugger fit, not necessarily because of the gene company, but because of what I'm eating. But I did have a dynamics that began to trouble me, and that was I know the waste on these, and there's no reason that I should be having to hike them up or keep them from falling down. And I was spending my week doing that. The scales weren't lying to me. I had made no progress. I wanted to believe everything about these Levi's telling me that I was just now almost in my prime again. And wow, just what a change will do for you. But the scales were not lying. I couldn't figure it out. And so I was going to write the company. Don't you know how to make jeans anymore? <laughs> Chrissy, what was that size that you ordered for me? Did you, did you fool me and they're like 36s? And she's had some fun with me over the years and getting me a variety of clothing lines that cause things to happen like laughter later on down the road. So none of those things played out. And today I went to Zachary and said, Zachary, I can't find a belt. I got to remedy this. Do you have a belt? So he gave me a belt. I think it's a belt that was originally on my jeans. <laughs> yeah. 
and I tried to put it on and it would, the, you know how the, you just missed that one first hole by like three inches? <laughs> and that's what happened. And I thought, I can't believe it. I know Spencer gave me one of his belts, don't know what I did with it. Okay, so I'm gonna shorten this up. So I decided that for the sake of just, you know, humility, actually not being humiliated any longer, I took the belt, I found a screwdriver and a hammer and I went out to a piece of wood in the front of the house and I thought, I think I can make this work. I'm gonna put another hole in it that allows me to reach it. And so I took the screwdriver and pounded it and I had my hole. Now it wasn't a Leatherman's hole, so I did have trouble forcing that little thing in it, but I made it. And here's the basically the nuts and bolts of it. I had to take responsibility for something that wasn't altogether right in my life. And though it is true, I did in fact wonder what has the company done now? Wrangler, I've been with you all of these years. I've forsaken Levi, but now you're going to have consumer wrath. And so I knew that that couldn't be the problem. And I knew that Christie couldn't have been the problem. And Zachary had freely given me a solution to the problem. But I knew that I needed to take care of my problem. I needed to put my hands around it. I needed to change my heart concerning it. I'm happy to say that I think those things have been accomplished, plus to be able as well to say, Lord, my heart was wrong. Receiving them, I was glad. Having challenges with them, I was mad. But now, Lord, I've had an encounter with you. I've changed because I chose to. Part of the inspiration is that as I was driving through town yesterday, I realized that other people, much like me, had problems in their interpretation of things that seemingly they thought was wrong about another person or two or three. So as I was driving through one of those quick little crosswalks without lights appears, and I saw two teenagers on the side of the street ready. They were looking at it, ready to take the step off of it, and I was able to brake appropriately. Braked in front of it. Didn't slam on the brakes. I saw it enough of an advance to be able to honor what they were ready to do. The car to my left driving through that point, or up to that point, wasn't as engaged. They did stop and they did not intrude on the line, but the teenagers began to cross before securing that all lanes of traffic had stopped. I think you can understand the point that's being made here. It takes the responsibility of the drivers and it takes as well the responsibility of the pedestrian to be in agreement that we're safe now. We've made room for what you've got to do and you've waited for that room to be granted so that you can cross safely. The car stopped, wasn't ahead of me, did rock a little bit, but I just kind of looked over to my left and kind of winked, you know, like, right, good job, you did it. And saw the other traffic. These guys had already crossed in front of my car, already had then crossed just in front of that vehicle that had to brake harder, and they both turned around and did one of these sinister little looks, such as, how dare you? How dare you not stop for me? 
And I just watched the behavior. It wasn't then a quick gate to move across what we would say is a zone that has potential threat. It was a very slow gated shuffle to make sure that we all waited just a little bit longer. And with each shuffle, one of them looked back glaringly at the car that was by my side. And I just watched it. When they got on the curb safely on the other side, no traffic intruded, no, nobody started. Because this particular individual continued to stare down and mouth disrespect towards, in particular, the automobile that I was next to. And I just said, my goodness, is this really what we are about? Is it really that we must take an incident, position somebody in the line of blame, and shame them for it? Because we become a what? Shaming culture. We become a blaming people. And it is now working not only its way on the upper chains of command and our government, but even in the lower sectors of what you'd call the domestics. And I just said, is this really where we're at? Because I believe strongly that there's another perspective, and that is, praise God, that guy braked. Have you ever done that one? Instead of, I'm going to get that guy for threatening my life within five feet. Have you ever also said, praise God, an inch is as good as a mile. Praise the Lord, he's my deliverer. You see, it's a matter of perspective in what it is in an incident, in a crisis, you choose to believe. And my thoughts are, is the closer that we are to saying, stop, my mind's going in a direction in which I'm dismissing my responsibility in order to levy irresponsibility to somebody else. I'm going to stop that. I'm not going to choose to do that. And I've found that no matter what it is in our life, both in church and government and vocation, it's something that is incited within each one of us as individuals. And I think that one of the things that we've seen is that when a, a pattern becomes the pattern, but it needs to be actually thrown away, then we begin simply repeating and embellishing and doing everything that we can to remove from us risk and responsibility and to heap it upon somebody else. And the scriptures have some evidence that we need to be anchored on. You're saying, will you be anchoring us in this? I will be. It's, in my opinion, emphasizing the heart of God towards others that perhaps in their life have had it hard and need a different spirit, a different form of conduct. We're going to see that what David does to this character, Mephibosheth, was extraordinary like the Lord. And what I believe the Lord would say, do you want to be more like me than be more like David with regard to those who in their situation have had it hard? You may say, okay, so how does that, okay, so let's go back in this. We got a belt that now works and holds up your britches. And we got teenagers that were crossing that weren't holding their peace. How does it all relate? An attitude, a frame of mind. 
in which what I was thinking in terms of trying to evaluate why things weren't going right with something that I had in origin and excitement over what was going on. I was simply put in a predicament in which my heart deserved examination. Many things I can do to solve it. One of the things that I ought not do, which the Lord said, is blame. Rejoice. You got a new pair of britches that grandma would be excited about, and your wife took care of that. Let Wrangler go. They've got their own issues that I'm wrangling with them on. So when we move into this, I want you to see that picture because it also has an anchor point all the way back in Genesis when two perfectly created beings began to listen to the influence of at one time a divine being who served the Lord, rebelled against God, and desired to incite rebellion from two perfect individuals towards God as he had once done. And he was given ultimately a consequence for. And that experience goes back to the garden in which Satan tempted Eve, she being deceived, Adam being disobedient, plunged the world into sin. And by the way, it's easy to try and blame them as well. We wouldn't be in this mess if it wasn't for them. They made it probably longer in what would be the evidentiary area of temptation than any of us possibly could have made it. Think of how long you've been out of perhaps the testing and trial of temptation and how well you did walking from it, turning your back on it, or taking a step towards it and perhaps being a victim of it. Who's to blame? We are. What do we do? We go to the Lord in faith and we ask that we be examined in light of his perfect eyes because he inspects us and he loves us and his correction for us has already been by remedy of Jesus. So let's pick it up in verse 3 here and pursue this theme, the shame of blame and see if we can stop being a voice piece of shaming others and blaming others. It should not happen. Chapter 9, 2 Samuel, picking it up at verse 3, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Question mark. David is looking for an opportunity to show the kindness of God to someone in the household of Saul via the lineage of right now Jonathan. We're going to find that out. But Saul was one who was an enemy of David's, one who pursued him doggedly through approximately 10 years of a force out from a position that David was given by God to take. And the reason that this is important is because 
there would have been a long enough history, a long enough misery for David to say, I'm cleaning house. I'm going to change things. I'm going to get even. I have the authority to do so. Back then, the lineage of a kingship would be asserted and guaranteed by the one who would be taking over that by literally if they weren't your family or kin or even if they were, you would depose them. You would, you would basically take them out so that there would be no competition for your rule. It was heartless. It became actually a pattern that Israel learned from neighboring kingdoms and it was wrong. David had eyes that said, in spite of his sufferings, he was going to look and find whom he might be kind towards to show what? The kindness of God. So I believe that one of the things here that's a critical point is that when in our disappointments and when it is easy for us to point at individuals that may be responsible for it, are we those who will seek out an individual or several individuals that certainly may be linked to the broken heart we have, to perhaps the humiliation we've experienced and say, I am going to show the kindness of God who in that situation might it be. In this case, he was cued in to Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth would have been the son of Jonathan. And Mephibosheth had in his history also something that could have left him embittered. For he had been harmed in a fall in which his nursemaid had taken him when the city was threatened to be under attack and she tripped. Doesn't say exactly how he became crippled, but the scriptures tell us he was lame and so he would not have been able to function as a man in the way that a man would have been esteemed and would have been able to present himself of nobility. He would have been of nobility based on Jonathan, his father, who was a prince of Israel. And the other thing that you need to be reminded of is as a result of Saul, he would have also had the perhaps skepticism and weight of feeling now terrible about himself. Because David has been exalted, he has been anointed, Saul was indeed purposely being an enemy of David's, and he may have thought, man, if it wasn't for my family background, I'd be in better standing with David, and now my life potentially is at risk, judged, because of my lineage. Oh, man, what do I do? Lame and his lineage if you would, of ill repute. Because Saul's attitude and his behavior was without good behavior, contradicting his role as a king. It continues to say that he was then brought to the attention of David's by a servant of his, and King David sent, pick it up in verse 5, 
the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David and he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And then David said, Mephibosheth. It says he said it. It's a question. Mephibosheth. He had asked, is there anyone that I can show the kindness of God to? One says, there is one. Mephibosheth is brought before him. Mephibosheth is prostrating himself before David. What's the question there for? If David has sought an answer, is there anyone I can show kindness to? And it has to do with simply this. Mephibosheth doesn't cower. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't have a vendetta against David. He prostrates himself and shows humility in the face of being one who was humiliated, both in his lineage and in his lameness. He had two strikes against him from a cultural standpoint, even from a spiritual standpoint. It was a prohibition for lame people to be able to have in the same charge the approachability to God through the priesthood that those who weren't lame or hilt could have. His access had only been enjoyed by being a son of Jonathan's exclusively on that. And for him right now, that was gone. The only one that he could look to was to David, whom he couldn't even look at, because he even questioned whether or not he would merit the favor of a king. This is interesting because David is a picture of a king. And very often people in our culture presently, that even we know, have been by lineage and by accident, consequences somehow in their life, reputations that have been ruined, destroyed, things that have been done, that if you could do it again, you would. And so what we see there is as David appears to give the question, he's looking into the heart of confession. Mephibosheth. He knew what David is being allowed to show us is the question mark that God as well gives to us and is searching out. Rich. Have you ever had your name said in such a way that it's, well, we know what it's like when it's got an exclamation mark and a middle name that's used. I always knew when my mom and dad were calling me. It was Richard William, and I needed to have an answer for something. But there's also a time when my name has been whispered, Rich. And it's with the question mark. But it has an exclamation mark, and it's like, what is that? What is this? And to me, every time it's the Lord saying, good to see you before me. Glad that you're inquiring of me, recognizing you prostrating yourself before me. Rich. Because this rich who at times in his life earlier and still can have challenges today, whether it be over Levi's or whatever, 
wranglers, whatever, traffic protocols, whatever, the Lord says, I see that I have your heart now and how it is that you're presenting yourself. Mephibosheth right now would be an icon historically of what a good king desires to do. We have a good king that desires to do great things for people who have been lowly esteemed, who have actually been put on their face because of what people have said about them, done to them. But this is a man who, in spite of it, says, I'm going to be put on my face by free will. I'm going to humble myself before this king, and I will find my answer in what he says. Oh, the question. David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, and notice this answer, here is your servant. When I re-identify myself, not simply as Richard William Ablett the first, but I say, servant, Lord, your servant. It changes what tends to be my conversation to God, which very often is levied in complaints grievances, attitude. He answers so correctly, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. That's the invitation of God. People can spend a lot of time blaming others. Maybe rightfully so, but it's not right before the eyes of God. And the problem with blame is that it ultimately leads to the next offense which is shame, an intentional, malicious effort to demean a person that God has made in his image. And in this political season, and our cultural time of unrest, will the mouth be silenced for the ears to be sensitive and the heart to be able to project truly the will of God? Whenever I get asked questions, there's a little bit of my knees that knock in fear of, will I answer the question correctly? Is this a trick question? Am I going to get it right in terms of what would God give as the voice of his heart? And I'm reminded in those situations, though, that in taking that time to ready myself, for what may be an answer to an individual from the Lord, I can say, I think I got that one right, Lord. I think I did okay. But I will now let that be between you and the other. David guarantees that where this man feared for his life and was certainly one who could have been embittered about how things went in his life. Did you know that when in the lineage a father passes on that particular mantle. It's to the next 
in position as a son, and if not him, then the next brother and the next sibling, until eventually one is able to take it. This basically because of Jonathan losing his life in battle with his father and his other brother, this would have put him in the lineage for an office that he will not hold. But everything about the office that he did not hold now through David's lips comes with every blessing that he could have ever dreamed of. He never has to worry about working the fields. He does not have to fear about losing his life. The banqueting table speaks of a table that God is preparing for you and I when this tenure on earth with all of the stuff that we hear all of the smears that we've had to endure, the humiliations that perhaps still may come, God says, I'm setting a table before you, and it will be in the presence of your enemies, but not for long, for I will take you out of their sight. And they're going to be wondering how they got left behind. My kindness will endure. When we see that this was reiterated by Paul, and it's really a very comforting verse found in Romans 2, 4, and can also be altered as in the goodness of God. It's the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. So what if in Mephibosheth's heart, maybe things hadn't been fully cleared? He was going through the motions and they seemed oh so right. But what if now God seals it through David's charity, his mercy, and Mephibosheth becomes now an ally, an advocate, one who in the wings and who is enjoying now no longer being worried about his life. Do you know that the worrying of what your life will be can provoke you to do things that are not God's will for you? Worrying about things Andrew gave a great devotional from a psalm yesterday, summed it all up in pretty much that phrase. Psalm 131, was it not, Andrew? Yeah. Because the Lord was touching his heart. It was a great word. I would encourage you to read Psalm 131 that was just perfectly delivered uh, in a devotional that Andrew gave. And it may be for you a word from a good God who now wants to comfort you in an act of kindness, in things that right now are eating you up, messing with your mind, provoking you to being bitter and not seeing the better work of God. But when we see this, it is a beautiful picture, and Peter would also have to write this as well. Now, I say write and have to because he was under the compelling of the Holy Spirit. And being under the compelling of the Holy Spirit, he wrote some really awesome truth with regard to an understanding that he learned of the Lord in the tenure that he had with Jesus. So if you want to as well, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, um, you can just keep it there, mark, mark it if you want to, but I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then I'll do a fallback. To conclude this, 4.8, when God bestows a kindness, demonstrates a forgiveness, offers a promise, you're going to be eating around my table. You'll never have to worry about 
anything at all ever again. It's summed up here that others also can be beneficiaries of. So that when we take the crosswalks in life, we can say, this is my responsibility in this crosswalk. This is dangerous. But I'm going to take it as a responsible person. I'm going to trust God to see me through the other side. And I'm going to be really careful on looking for somebody to blame if it turns out something different than what I expect. I'm going to use my eyes. I'm going to use my hearing. But I'm not going to use my mouth. And I'm not going to blame. And I'm not going to shame. I respect those crosswalks. I would say that at crosswalks that aren't marked with lights, I'd rather walk down to the next block where there's a light. Oh, yeah, we don't have many of those breakings. I'd rather go back to the movie theater. Everybody stops there. I'd rather take another direction, even if it puts an imposition on me, that I can be retained for one more day to do a work for God one more year, you know? And that I don't have to get mad at somebody just because I took an easy way that turned out to be the wrong way. And then I became altogether something different. I don't think bad of those teens, by the way, because I understand where they're learning it from. They're learning it from a culture that has rejected God, that doesn't understand the kindness of God, the mercy and grace of God. That's our job. We can't do it, though, when we're in a rage ourselves. So me say, okay, so what about First Peter? Here it says this. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will co cover a multitude of sins. See, even though the best picture is what Mephibosheth did and how David responded, that's not necessarily the ideal that is in our certain future. And so the Lord says this, try this out. Kindness will work, but love definitely works. And love works sacrificially by covering that incident. Not broadcasting it, not trying to make something additionally to it. It just covers it. It turns its back not on the person, but on the sin. That's an awesome thing to remember. Have you ever felt that relief when all of a sudden you're going, I've been forgiven. I've experienced mercy. I haven't been judged. It's not saying, whoo, do I feel justified in the next act of sin I'm going to do? All of a sudden you realize there's no reason at all that God would do this for me or that an individual would show this to me. So sometimes it is really important to realize that what you have gone through is for the sole purpose of demonstrating that in real time, in real life. What is it that we go through? So I close on this verse. I'm directing your eyes to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. This is why you experience and are allowed to know the hurt and suffering 
that is not comfortable, that you would not impose upon yourself, that you would, if you could, change with regard to it being perhaps the consequence of sin. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of what? Mercies and God of all comfort. Mercy means you did not get what it is you deserved. And he's the Father of mercies. And he is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our tribulation that we may, note this, be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, notice his sufferings abound in us, but that's separate from the consequence that we very often experience by being unchristlike. So our consolation also abounds through Christ. He's a consoler. So to the soul that's torn, the soul that has been deflated, the personality that perhaps does not measure what you believe is your true inner person, your true God nature, then maybe for you it's the, it's the assessment. What has happened to me that's changed my disposition? Why do I feel this way? And why towards others would I behave against them in a manner that I resented when it was against me? It's putting yourself in the place of an individual who's not doing well, but who on the contrary is actually doing very badly. And you might be the only one that says, let me help you across that crosswalk. Let me see that in the risk we're both going to take, you get to the other side. And by the way, I'm going to protect the driver that you want to give a judgment to, because I see that you will get across this walk with me but I'm also going to make sure that that driver is not offended by what you want to say to them. If I extend mercy in the crosswalk for you, you will extend mercy in the crosstalk towards them. You cross at them, you're not going to talk to them that way. And somebody stands in the gap for mercy's sake. Somebody chooses to say, over my dead body, as opposed to your dead body, and that's one of the beauties is that we can say, Lord, you've made me a living sacrifice. How good is that? I don't have to be a dead sacrifice. People may want to kill me, but I can be a living sacrifice for the sake and purposes of ministering comfort, consolation, and mercies to one who right now is at a tipping point in their faith and perhaps ready to do something in their fury that they will regret. Help us, Lord, to be those who, like Mephibosheth, take no inventory on our historic legacy, how bad it may have been, what you wish somebody would have done for you and didn't, a position that you will not occupy because it's not yours, and the lameness that you've experienced because of wounds that are real. Okay, so learn how to crawl. Learn how to limp. Learn how to do it differently, but learn to honor God in his uniqueness of being merciful, kind, 
always making our lives better because we're going to the best place that has ever been available to any individual, and it's heaven. Grief abounds, but God would say, true, but I lead men, women, and children from glory to greater glory, and that's our focus. Not from gory to greater gory, glory to greater glory.